1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in the East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Chen, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Fiona Moore about her new book, Global Taiwanese, Asian-skilled labor migrants in a changing world. This book was published by University Toronto Press in 2021. In Global Taiwanese, Fiona Moore explores the different ways in which Taiwanese expatriate in London and Toronto, along with professionals living in Taipei, use their shared Taiwanese identities to construct and maintain global and local networks. Based on a three-year-long ethnographic study that incorporates interviews with people from diverse backgrounds, generations, and histories, this book explores what their different experiences tell us about migration, intolerant, and hostile regimes. Global Taiwanese considers the implication in leveraging their Taiwanese ethnic identity for both business and personal purposes. As people become increasingly mobile, ethnic identity becomes more important as a means of negotiating transnational encounters. However, at the same time, the opportunities it offers are rooted in local cultural practices, requiring professionals and other migrants to develop complex social strategies that link and cross the global and local levels. With rich ethnographic details, this book contributes to the understanding of the migrant experience and how it varies from location to location, how migration changes in response to wider socioeconomic factors, and, finally, of the specific case of Taiwan and how the distinctive nature of its diaspora emerges through wider discourses of chinese and Pan-Asian identity. So this is a brief introduction about the book, and now let's turn to the author. Welcome to the show, Fiona. Hello. Happy to be here. All right. So uh, before we uh, discuss about the book itself, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your research interests? Okay, right. Well,
0: I um, I sometimes describe myself as an anthropologist who uh, wandered into a business school about 20 years ago and stayed because they keep feeding her. Um which is a joke, but uh, it's sort of um, a facetious way of describing my career. Um, I uh, took uh, anthropology as an undergraduate student and became very interested in it and uh, looked into doing postgraduate work and uh, wound up being uh, lucky enough to get uh, an opportunity to uh, study at the University of Oxford. And while I was there... um, my uh, doctoral research um, was on uh, um, German bankers in the city of London. This was the uh, turn of the millennium. And uh, you know, there was a lot of interest in uh, you know, looking at, um, at groups, uh, um, elite groups, uh, migrant groups that had never really been looked at before. And so I uh, studied how they uh, used their identities to negotiate transnational social spaces. Um, at the end of it, uh, you know, I found that uh, a lot of uh, anthropologists that study organizations, uh, you know, uh, wind up in, um, in business schools um, because uh, uh, despite their uh, hard-nosed quantitative stereotype, business schools uh, do usually need a few uh, qualitative types around to uh, uh, bring perspectives that, uh, you know, you can't get with the numbers. So eventually I uh, wound up at uh, my current uh, institution, Royal Holloway, which is uh, very nice. Um, Though in between, I uh, did a uh, study of uh, uh, the uh, BMW factory in uh, East Oxford, which uh, was uh, a really really interesting time and also uh, took part in a uh, multi-anthropologist uh, sort of simultaneously practical and research-oriented project involving uh, uh, Tesco uh, and its uh, subsidiaries in a number of Asian countries including Taiwan I think so uh, you know there uh, uh, that's uh, kind of the uh, background and how we um, got up to uh, the point at which I wrote the book and, uh, you know, uh, which uh, I will stop here so we can uh, talk about that later. (laughs)
1: so uh, thank you for uh, Fiona sharing with us this amazing uh, journey or also the connection between anthropology and also business uh, schools that's kind of interdisciplinary background and also this transnational profile of your research as well so um, next question is so this book Global Taiwanese. So, how do you start this project? Can you tell us a little bit about your inspiration, or maybe some of the anecdote that uh, motivate you to uh, start this project?
0: Well, I um, got interested. I was starting to, uh, you know, run out of uh, um, material. Uh, you know, I'd been publishing on BMW for quite a while, but you know, was getting to the point where uh, I think most of the research insights I could get from that. Uh, were um, uh, you know, I'd written um, something about them. So, uh, you know, I was looking around for a new project, new fields, and uh, um, I was initially interested in uh, doing something that followed up my uh, German uh, research because I, I'd always said that uh, one of the future directions uh, the project could go in would be to uh, look at a, um, a different group of professionals in the City of London, you know, a different ethnic group. Now, initially, I actually started out uh, thinking I would uh, look at uh, uh, mainland Chinese, not Taiwanese, because um, they were uh, uh, quite a powerful group in uh, uh, British uh, multinational business at the time. Um, But, well, it's always uh, hard to... um, get an in, in, introduction as an anthropologist to a community if you don't have a connection to it. And so, you know, I tried for a while, didn't really get to many places. And then um, a Taiwanese colleague said to me, uh, you know, um, I have a uh, friend uh, who uh, works for TITRA and uh, maybe uh, you could uh, uh, do something with TITRA, uh, the Taiwanese Trade Association, uh, just for those who... Uh, uh, don't know it. And um, so I said, well, sure, you know, and I'm glad that happened because actually I found that uh, in the first place, I uh, learned that uh, the uh, Taiwanese uh, community is m- uh, much, m- you know, such a fascinating uh, Uh, community and one that's been uh, very little studied relative to the mainland Chinese. And uh, often, as I discuss in the book from a perspective that doesn't necessarily, uh, historically, uh, from a perspective that doesn't necessarily respect uh, Taiwanese uh, identity as uh, a distinct uh, distinct nation. And then, you know, so I was uh, interviewing um, Taiwanese uh, people in London and uh, you know, the points at which it started to, uh, cease to be a direct comparison with my German work were, um, uh, first of all, that the business landscape was different. The, um, German, um, people I was mostly talking with were uh, mostly people who were working for banks in the city of London. And, um, there was kind of a late floating labor pool of, um, uh, people who, uh, were German or, uh, you know, were, uh, fluent enough in German to, uh, and uh, understand the German system, and they just kind of uh, drifted around between the uh, German banks, but they were always kind of associated with a bank or a company, whereas the Taiwanese people, um, I found, you know, as uh, I've indicated, uh, the title shows, you know, these are uh, uh, self-initiated expatriates for the most part, you know, not people who... uh, you know, came to uh, London and uh, then, you know, for one reason or another uh, stayed in London, um, whether they intended to or not. And, uh, you know, so um, there was kind of a different pattern. They weren't just sort of uh, working, a labour pool working for a particular community of organisations. You know, some of them were uh, uh, working that, doing similar, but a lot of them were entrepreneurs or uh, lawyers or doctors or uh, designers. So kind of a different set of migration patterns. And secondly, also, um, roundabout, uh, you know, as uh, I uh, did uh, work on it, you know, my uh, uh, a a few connections kind of came to uh, the fore. Um, My... um, younger sister's uh, best friend from uh, secondary school is a Taiwanese Canadian. And so my sister and she were uh, reading what I was saying, you know, quite interested with a lot of interest. And we're saying, you know, uh, you could uh, do a comparison with the Toronto community because it's uh, there's you've got an insight into the Taiwanese community there. But, uh, you know, it's quite a different situation. And uh, I was thinking, yeah, that would be interesting if I could get the funding." But then lo and behold, uh, uh, an opportunity to apply for a uh, small uh, amount of funding that would uh, you know cover travel and expenses uh, came up, and I said, "Great, I've got an in on the community. I can stay with family, and uh, I can, uh, you know do some research that's uh, at this point, not just professionally interesting to me, but personally interesting." So that's where that came in, and uh, that wound up being fruitful in a lot of ways, because although Toronto is a global city like London, as I detail in my book, it's quite a different uh, sort of a global city. The way it's global is very different to London, and one thing that became very relevant as I uh, did my research, um, the UK, uh, as I was doing my research, was becoming more and more hostile to migrants, and... uh, Uh, Canada quite historically uh, tends to pride itself on being uh, a friendly environment for migrants. So I said, uh, well, that's an interesting point of comparison. You know, do people's experiences uh, differ, you know, in the ways that you would expect given these policy differences? So that came there. And then the final uh, piece of the puzzle, as it were, came in when... um, again, through personal connections, I was uh, talking about the project with a Taiwanese colleague and saying that, uh, you know, I would like an opportunity to uh, go and do some work in Taiwan itself so that I could understand the background. But um, equally, a lot of the uh, research uh, funding available was uh, not really something that uh, would work for me, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, what the time, my timelines and my uh, personal and professional commitments. And he said, let me get back to you on that. And then emailed me about a visiting fellowship scheme at uh, at his university, National Chung Chi, which would actually uh, work out quite well for me. So I was able to go out to uh, Taipei and conduct some interviews and also understand better where uh, my self-initiated expatriates were coming from. And um, again, I was really pleased. I didn't expect the opportunity to do a book. I, We'll also say that it was uh, serendipitous. I was expecting that I would write some journal papers and, um, you know, that would be uh, enough, really, you know. But then, um, you know, a uh, a representative from the University of Toronto Press came to the university and said, uh, you know, we're interested in uh, people pitching uh, research books uh, to us. Uh, Have you got an idea? And well, I did, (laughs) but um, I didn't think they'd go for it. I thought, well, uh, you know, they probably won't be interested in this, so uh, I'll just suggest it and uh, see if they say no. And to my surprise, they said, no, absolutely. This is exactly the sort of thing we want. You know, there's a Canadian angle. It's multidisciplinary. It's the sort of thing that could work in a uh, anthropology of complex society sort of courses. So, uh, you know, I uh, said, uh, right, I'll uh, write this as a book. And I did write it as a book. And, uh, you know, um, here we are.
1: And now we are talking about your book. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, thank you, Fiona, for um, sharing with us about the journey, how this research idea start, and then eventually turn into a book form. And then, especially you mentioned in London, you see the Tonys communities. They have very diverse and different career trajectories, and also uh, different uh, migrant. Uh, migration patterns. And uh, you do also mention the London, Toronto, Taipei, there's three different sites for your research and also for your interviewees, which I believe we will talk more uh, in detail, uh, one city by another. And um, I guess the one, uh, the next question I want to ask is, um, specifically about Taiwan. You mentioned that your colleagues and also your family friends uh, introduced you to some of the connections to the Taiwanese diaspora communities. And so this, uh, I guess this answer part of the question, why Taiwan? But I want to hear you talk more about what makes Taiwan and especially Taiwanese diaspora a a specific and also significant starting point for this project.
0: Well, as an anthropologist and one who specializes in identity, I'm always fascinated by the uh, complexity of identity, particularly in a global context. And, uh, you know, as soon as I started delving into Taiwanese identity, it became particularly uh, exciting for me because of uh, the complexity that um, Taiwanese identity, um, you know, uh, often what I found when I was looking at uh, management studies and business studies literature on Taiwan was it just kind of uh, treated Taiwan, you know, un- in an uncomplicated way. It just said, you know, we are looking at uh, a Taiwanese company. Uh, this company, you know, um, Taiwan scores the following uh, ways on the following matrices, um, and uh, end of story. And uh, they weren't looking at uh, the complexities of it because, for instance. Um, Taiwanese identity. Uh, one of the things a lot of my interviewees were saying was, is Taiwanese identity uh, Chinese identity? I mean, it's a Chinese identity. Uh, most people said that, uh, you know, to some extent and in some circumstances, they identified as uh, Chinese. But at the same time, they also felt that, uh, you know, this was uh, not the same sort of Chinese as uh, being mainland Chinese and that, uh you know, they're, um, at the, they also felt like, uh, you know, that was only part of the story, that in some ways there was a distinct ide- way of being uh, Taiwanese, uh, you know, a majority, a country that's majority ethnically Chinese, and uh, yet is also Southeast Asian. It's got a, uh, a distinctive native population. It's got a very uh, distinct uh, history of colonization, not just by the Chinese, but by Europeans and Japanese. And um uh, also, uh, you know, because of the uh, recent history of Taiwan, you have this uh, div- dis- difference that I talk about in my uh, book because uh, that it's still relevant between the uh, Weishengren and the Benchengren, the people who, uh, the Benchengren, who have historically been a part of uh, uh, families have been living in Taiwan for sometimes uh, up to centuries. And the Weishengren, the people who uh, came over in the uh, late 1940s after uh uh, the uh, communist uh, victory on the mainland, and um, th- that is another thing that uh, could affect business, but that gets overlooked if you're just looking at uh, Taiwanese businesses as a unit. You know, with a bit more knowledge, for instance, I was looking at a paper on you know a Taiwanese multinational, and uh, you know it so happened this Taiwanese multinational had a lot of Japanese connections, and I was looking at and thinking. Um, you know, I wonder if the uh, company is uh, more, you know, their ownership is run uh, rather than run because, uh, you know, they tend to have more uh, connections with Japan or is there something more complicated going on? But you don't get that by looking on the surface. So uh, part of what I was trying to accomplish with the book, uh, you know, just. As a as a researcher, finding it fascinating, but also as a uh, contribution to the wider literature, was to explore how a uh, complicated identity like Taiwan's, um, you know, and the complex way that gets expressed, um, can uh, affect uh, real um, re- you know real business activities where you're uh, not necessarily expecting it to.
1: Yeah, I especially appreciate you talk about how the Taiwanese identity or Taiwanese identities is very complex. There are different layers, different dimensions, especially how they are shaped, as you mentioned, by the uh, very diverse ethnic composition, the history of serial colonization in Taiwan, in addition to the Nationalist Party, but also the Japanese colonization, and also earlier, uh, the European uh, colonizer as well. But... Also, as well as the uh, current geopolitical situation and also the transnational networks that Tamanese people is making and also uh, reaching out as well. So uh, with that, um, the second portion of your book title is about skilled labor migrants. So um, we would like to know more about why you focus on this specific group. So Taiwanese people uh, go to different places for uh, education, social mobility, uh, so on and so forth. But why particularly skilled labor migrants from Taiwan?
0: Um, well, in terms of uh, some of that is uh, dictated by, uh, you know, access. Uh, the people that uh, I was able to get connections with in London uh and even in in Toronto as well, were skilled labor migrants. And also, uh, you know, a lot of Taiwanese migration, uh, you know, has been uh, skilled labor migration. You know, it hasn't been uh, people uh, coming to work in factories. It's been, uh, you know, uh, people uh, coming to um, study overseas, for instance, and then once they had their degree deciding to stay or to uh, stay for a few years, that uh, turns into a long time. Um, so uh, there's a distinct skilled component, I think, to the Taiwanese uh, uh, diaspora. And um, so I wanted to uh, capture that. Um, there's also, I, th- I think, a lot of interest these days in skilled uh, labor migration. Uh, um, in the uh, in the labor migration literature, this is because a lot of the traditional literature is focused more on unskilled labor migration, and so it's... Uh, interesting to then kind of widen the, uh, the, the net and uh, see how um, this compares to other sorts of migration, um, but also because uh, skilled labour migration is, um, I think, becoming more and more crucial and is um, going to continue to be so. Um, for instance, one um, of the ways in which um, companies in Britain uh, deal with the uh, the um, uh, the problem of, uh, you know, the, the, the dilemma. You know, the uh, um, policy environment is uh, hostile to migrants, uh, so they can't, uh, you know, just simply bring people over to London the way they used to, but um, they need people with certain skills, like, say, Mandarin language skills or uh, uh, familiarity with uh, the Southeast Asian business environment. Um, and, uh, you know, previous... Or if they're a uh, Taiwanese company, then previously maybe they might have sent uh, an expatriate over and now they can't. So what they look at is they look at people who've uh, made it there under their own steam, you know, um, people who uh, went to university in London or, uh, you know, who uh, um, came over working for a company and stayed. And that way, uh, you know, they have, uh, you know, they, they, they don't. They have people who have the skills of expatriates, without uh, the company needing to uh, um, go through all the trouble that uh, they used to go to in getting expatriates. Uh, you know, these come with their own challenges and uh, uh, issues. But I think, uh, you know, as uh, barriers to migration become more common with the uh, pandemic and with uh, you know the uh, impact of. Um, on the uh, travel industry these days, uh, you know, I think we're just going to see more and more companies relying on people who uh, travel out under their own steam and stay. Um, And so uh, we need to understand what uh, motivates people like that and uh, why they come and why they stay and what companies can do to uh, get the ones they want.
1: Yeah, and then especially thank you for unpacking this kind of migration policies and also different consensus that make the skilled labor migrants from Taiwan a specific and also a significant case. What you say reminds me about the situation in United States as well. So in the 70s, um, you know, a lot of uh, Taiwanese professionals also uh, migrate to uh, United States, and then they are professionals, doctors, engineers, and students, or specifically graduate students. So here, you do see that there's specific profile of this wave of migrants from Taiwan to United States. And I believe it was uh, here and there called a uh, brain drain from Taiwan. So because all the quote unquote good people, uh, professionals are uh, in United States. And then later on we see a lot of different discourses about you know the success quote-unquote, the success of the uh, Asian American societies, the minority models, so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, so what do you say? Let me think about this, uh, if you will, the kind of comparison or these trajectories about how migration policies and also uh, geopolitical circumstances shape Taiwanese diaspora um, in different uh, contexts as well. So with that, and then to think about the uh, different contexts and different situation, circumstances in your book, you uh, unpack the global and local networks, these skilled labor migrants from Taiwan, they make and they also uh, facilitate as well. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what is the network society? And how does the Taiwanese skilled labor migrants help us to understand or maybe complicate this concept of the network society? Okay,
0: thanks. But before I answer that, I think I'd like to uh, uh, speak a bit to your other point. Um, One of the things that I found really uh, interesting uh, in my research and that I'm really pleased I had the opportunity to study was uh, uh, that there were quite clear uh, uh, differences, you know, Similarities too, but differences between different uh, generations and cohorts. I was pleased that I was able to look at, uh, at different uh, generations of migrants because you you uh, you know you you saw that that you saw uh, you know people who had migrated during the Cold War um, had very different um, experiences and very different um, migration patterns to uh, um, people who would migrated afterwards. I talked to a lot of. You know, people from who'd uh, migrated in the 90s as the global society opened up. And um, this was also interesting in the uh, Canadian context because, you know, this brings in another layer that um, with London, you know, everybody wanted to go to London. You know, not a lot of people wanted to stay in London, even of the ones who did. But, uh, you know, if you ask people, you know, who'd uh, uh, migrated, uh, you know, to uh, London, say, in the 70s, you know, uh, why London? They were like, oh, well, you know, the opportunity to study in London, study at, say, St. Martin's School of Design, you know, that was uh, just an opportunity not to be missed. And you talk to people in Toronto, and what you get was people who said, well, you know, there was this scholarship program in the 70s for Taiwanese people to study in the USA, and I wanted to study in the USA, and I didn't get into any American universities, so I wound up at a Canadian one. (laughs) you know, that uh, people, uh, well, they, they they were happy They uh, in the end that uh, they came to Toronto. You know, they uh, also uh, kind of didn't start out wanting to go there, that it was kind of a um, story of I wanted to migrate to the U.S. And, uh, you know, so some somewhere along the way took a different turn. So I found that all interesting and also uh, interesting in terms of Canadian identities as, uh, you know, the... Uh, country uh, next door to the uh, U.S. in the north and, uh, you know, locked in a slightly uneasy relationship with it. But in terms of the network society, um, th- thanks for asking about that. Um, the uh, network society was a concept um, that, in a way, uh, my book has been testing or revisiting. In the uh, 1990s, as people began to study uh, um, migrants and migration and uh, people constructing lives in, uh, you know, global settings. Um, one of the big academic, um, well, theories or discourses, however you want to call it, that uh, came out was uh, one by a geographer called Manuel Castells, um, who wrote a book called The Rise of the Network Society. And uh, um, that was kind of his uh, big theory that, you uh, um, what we were seeing was uh, the construction um, and the evolution of a society that wasn't existed in networks. It wasn't sort of linked to a single piece of geography or even a couple of pieces of geography that people were kind of existing in the spaces between places. And anyway, you know, that's all very well uh, in around the turn of the millenniums. So, but uh, since then we've had wars, we've had conflicts, we've had recessions. I mean, we've had a lot of, the sort of thing that made everybody say, you know, kind of, is this the end of globalization and yet uh, globalizing processes still continue, you know, um, as always, you know, with the pandemic recently, everybody was saying, Oh, is this the end of globalization, you know, with the pandemic and then with the uh, uh, logistics uh, um, failures, but um Interestingly, and kind of in support of my thesis, the answer so far has been uh, not necessarily. What's instead happening is uh, companies finding different ways to be global and people finding different ways to be global. So as uh, it becomes harder to travel to different places, uh, suddenly everybody discovers uh, video conferencing. And uh, as it uh, becomes harder to... um, you know people are talking about uh, more and more about uh, onshoring uh, uh, manufacturing so uh, you know returning to uh, a, a day when manufacturing uh, is done locally but um, as some people have noted uh, it, back in the 80s you know manufacturing may have been done locally but it was mostly done by migrants so you know uh, even when it looks global it's uh, it looks domestic it's actually uh, globally rooted And um, I think things are now so uh, uh, deeply globalized that it would be very difficult, if not impossible, uh, to uh, disentangle the threads. You know, you could start, you look at an Apple computer today, for instance, and uh, it's, uh, you know, part of it's manufactured in Malaysia and part of it's manufactured in Taiwan, of course, and part of it's uh, designed in California and some of it's made in the mainland and, uh, you know, um you can you know maybe start manufacturing all those p- pieces in one place but uh, you know the design is going to take place somewhere else a lot of uh, the components are going to be manufactured in other places just because of skills and knowledge reasons so uh, you know my argument is that uh, you know uh, so anyway so part of my uh, aim was to uh, first of all actually study a network society in the network a lot of the studies of network societies uh, um, up until uh, recently have, have been uh, studies of, uh, you know, a- at nodes in the network. So, you know, study the uh, uh, Taiwanese in London and study understand the Taiwanese uh, diaspora that way. But I'm um, looking at uh, more than one part of the network and I'm looking at the home country as well. So I'm looking at different uh, nodes in the network and from there, the spaces between. And secondly, also, I'm looking at the fact that uh, globalization changes and yet people uh, continue to do global things. So, uh, you know, so what does that mean? And uh, have we really understood how globalization
1: works? Right. And um, so uh, thank you for uh, telling us about the uh, Network Society and also how your uh, approach this uh, concept with the case of Taiwan diaspora. And especially you study the different nodes of the network that they built and also the spaces in between all these uh, nodes as well. And also, uh, just very briefly, uh, thank you for uh, mentioning the uh, Canadian uh, uh, case that I was just mentioning about this kind of trans-Pacific uh, context of migration in the 70s, and then um, you uh, co- uh, kind of make this beautiful connection uh, to what I just actually just came to my mind, and so you kind of uh, kind of bring uh, uh, this kind of. Like, uh, tiny stars bra together in a way that this American context, they have Canadian and also United States uh, situations as well. Um, So uh, with that, um, so now I would like to ask you a little bit more about the background of your interviewees as you mentioned they are skilled labor migrants and then but you also mentioned you interview different generations and different cohorts so can you brief uh, briefly tell us about uh, the uh, backgrounds and maybe also the uh, general profile of your interviewees that you study in this book okay well um
0: general profile be, beyond that uh, everybody was uh, uh, skilled at least uh, you know in the sense that uh, everybody um, had um, a uh, post secondary education everybody was working in uh, generally a uh, um, you know a skilled uh, trade and uh, you know or as a professional um, you know they they um, you know all all uh, all had that uh, aspect in common um, However, um, you know there were uh, differences in terms of what you were employed in, and uh, uh, you know what what your career paths were. So, for instance, uh, um, there were um, a lot of um, a lot of people who uh, uh, you know in went into engineering and uh, you know and other STEM subjects. You know, one of uh, uh, talking about the Canadian side of it and the Canadian-American relationship aspect of this, one of the my uh, interviewees, you know, a couple, well, more than one of my Canadian interviewees had uh, careers across the border. They uh, had worked uh, in the U.S. as well as in Canada or uh, had worked in the U.S. and then come started in Canada, gone to the U.S., come back to Canada. So that was uh, kind of quite flexible and uh You know, um, and also you know, means that you can't just simply say you know, kind of uh, um, the Taiwanese in X country because uh, you know they may move from uh, X country to Y country over the course of their career. And um, you know, there were uh, other patterns you know that were generational and gendered. For instance, a lot of my uh, older women employee uh, interviewees were in real estate or uh, similar, which. uh, you know, makes um, sense if you think about the uh, differences in gender patterns that uh, in the uh, in the 70s cohort, for instance, uh, a lot of uh, men are going to be migrating uh, as, uh, you know, as he says, doctors, as lawyers, as engineers, and they're going to bring their wife but their wife is going to also want, um, after a while, you know, she's going to want to uh, uh, have her own career as well. And real estate is one of the ways in which uh, women often do it, you know, because it's something you can do. Uh, you, you can fit around parenthood relatively easily. Um, it's uh, easy to train for. There is um, a big housing market. And so, you uh, you know and also i noticed there was a lot of friend referrals a lot of people who uh you know were looking for a job and then their friend said well you know i'm a, a realtor with uh, royal LePage. i could get you an interview and uh, so things follow along that way um one of the things i noticed with uh you know my gen x and millennial informants was uh that there were you know in both genders there tended to be career shifts you know people starting out in something like uh engineering or biology and then shifting mostly to uh, the tech industries i.t or similar but also other areas you know um, the uh, teaching and education uh, things like that so um, you know they uh, after the uh, the cold war we tend to see is more uh, career flexibility among uh, both genders and also kind of more of a uh, flexibility of identity more people saying you know well uh, Um, I will make it my children's choice, you know, whether they uh, uh, want to explore their Taiwanese heritage or not. And if they don't, you know, I'm, uh, uh, you know, not going to uh, force it upon them.
1: All right, so uh, thank you for mentioning this, uh, the generations and also the uh, gender, but also the transnational movement and also I should say transnational movements. As you point out that uh, these individuals, these professionals, they might be uh, relocating one places and then to another as well. So it's not necessarily just one destination, it could be multiple destinations, multiple nations involved. In their careers, so this kind of transnational movements, this different trajectories, and also multiple uh, 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 location in their careers. So uh, with that. Um, um, now we know a little bit more about the interview uh, interviewees so uh, earlier you mentioned why you focused on Tony' skilled labor in London and Toronto and how you get a connection into these uh, diaspora groups in London and Toronto. So can you tell us about uh, the experience of these, skilled labor migrants in the two cities. What do you find is the similarity or maybe the different experiences? Well, the
0: metaphor I wound up using in uh, my book, and I mean, bear in mind that this is just an observational lens and uh, people's experiences uh, of migration are uh, always very different. Um, The uh, concept uh, that uh, brought it home to me was the idea of the uh, sojourner society versus the settler society. Um, As I mentioned, uh, with uh, London, you know, kind of uh, everybody wants to go to London, but uh, not everybody wants to uh, uh, live there uh, long term. And um, you know, this is true, uh, you know, not just of uh, migrants from outside, but even within Britain, you know, if they've got the uh, uh, it's almost a trope, you know, the idea of people who come to London and then move out in later life. Um, So London is very much kind of a sojourner society. Everything in London is uh, predicated on the idea that you likely won't uh, want to stay, that you'll likely want to move on after a few years. And um, meanwhile, in Toronto, um, I argue that's a settler society, because even though people might move on after a few years, uh, everything seems to be kind of predicated on the uh, idea that uh, you're going to want to stay uh, long term. Now, um, one thing I often cite about uh, this because, again, it was one of these uh, insight moments um, was when I uh, was realizing that you get uh, in both cities, you get adverts for uh, immigration lawyers uh, on the uh, uh, on the public transport, you know, the tube or the subway. Um, but in London, the, uh, uh, lo- uh, services are, uh, um, you know, ones that will help you uh, get your green card to the USA. And in Toronto, what they're mostly advertising is, uh, services that will help you bring your family over from wherever you migrated from. And I was like, that's an interesting difference just in terms of how people are treating migrants, you know, that, um. London is treating it with the approach that uh, you're going to be uh, wanting to go to New York. And uh, Toronto is treating it with the approach that uh, you're going to want to bring your spouse and children. Um, So it doesn't mean that more people stay in Toronto. They don't necessarily. It doesn't mean that more people leave London. They don't necessarily. But it does mean that people are viewing their uh, time in both cities very differently.
1: Yeah. And then um, I especially appreciate you mentioned the advertisement um, um, differently, how it is different uh, in uh, United States or uh, in uh, Toronto as well. So I think, as you mentioned and also discussed uh, beautifully, this reflects the immigration uh, policy and in some cases the uh, barriers that uh, these individuals face. So uh, in the beginning, uh, for example, in a United States contest, it might be their own uh, visa status. So they need to file for themselves first. But in the uh, uh, Toronto, for example, that uh, for them, especially for the uh, skilled labor, they might be getting the visa or work permits, and now they are thinking about next step that is their families and their spouse. So I think this uh, definitely a great example to reflect the different uh, migration policies, situation, and also the reality that these uh, uh, people face. So uh, with that, um, in your book, you mentioned that either sojourner or settler, that's the Taiwanese diaspora, individuals in London or Toronto, they are building and then also shaping a network. And this is the transnational network. So, uh, can you tell us about how these, how do these Taiwanese skilled labor migrants use their ethnic identity to construct and shape transnational network focused on Chinese ness and or Taiwanese ness? Well,
0: one of the things that really struck me is that uh, because um, identity is uh, complex and uh, uh, multifaceted, people can use uh, the identity to build connections within the community, as you'd expect, but also outside the community. So, uh, for instance, a lot of uh, London Taiwanese uh, uh, would construct networks with uh, Hong Kongese and Malay Chinese, you know, along the uh, people who had similar uh, experiences of identity, uh, of, you know, of a Chinese identity that's Chinese but not of the mainland. And, uh, you know, th- those identities are also quite different, but uh, you can see that there's, uh, you know, a use of uh, a shared chineseness and a specific experience of chineseness to uh, build a connection there and um, similarly in um, there there were uh, times when uh, in the toronto context when uh, people uh, self identified as uh, taiwanese you know there was a taiwan town and uh, also the you know the ways in which it uh, expressed itself i remember i went to you know when i was uh, um, doing my field work, uh, I went out to the uh, Asia Pacific Mall, which is a big, um, you know, pan-Asian shopping center on the outskirts of Toronto. And then, uh, you know, I I, uh, had my father with me. He was uh, helping with transport, uh, you know, mostly driving me because I was jet-lagged. And, uh, you know, and uh, uh, so I said, uh, after we discovered there was another little shopping mall nearby that seemed to be Asian, so I said, let's check that out. And after about 10 seconds in the place, I said, uh, this place is Taiwanese. You know, you wouldn't necessarily know it unless you knew. But, you know, the uh, DVDs on offerings, the food on offer, you know, all of this is saying this is a Taiwanese uh, place. So, you know, it's uh, showing your identity through uh, just kind of subtle things, the uh, the food you eat, the products you consume, you know, there was a... uh, pastry shop that uh, I used to shop at uh, when I lived in Toronto. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until I did my study that the penny dropped that this was a Taiwanese uh, place. So, um, you know, it is about using the subtleties of identity and also the uh, connections, you know, the common ground that different identities provide to uh, uh, negotiate these transnational spaces to make business contacts, to make social contacts, to make uh, contacts that wind up as both again one of the uh, interesting points came uh, I uh, interviewed uh, some people from the uh, Taiwanese Student Association in Oxford and uh, you know amusingly the uh, Taiwanese Association in Cambridge wouldn't talk to me because of the as uh, the famous rivalry between Oxford and Cambridge um, but uh, you know um, it there, there's an identity to having gone to Oxford you know the alumni uh, networks keep you up you know there are uh, alumni events the alumni office follows you around uh, the world and so there was kind of a connection between you know a, a Taiwanese identity and a having gone to Oxford identity that people used you know so uh, there were alumni connections that uh, people could leverage you know that uh, were a uh, form of uh, identity which people would sometimes use to uh, build business contacts and sometimes just use for uh, their own uh, non-business ends or social ends and uh, you know and in that way kind of a uh, thriving business diaspora develops
1: yeah, and then um, especially you mentioned that the uh, ethnic identities are reflected, as you mentioned, in that uh, shopping mall, the different food items that they have there, and also the different cultural products that they have there. So, and how that actually, you know, uh, shape the community or specific uh, the uh, diaspora community uh, there as well. So uh, we, we talk about the network society and also the transnational networks. And in your book, you mentioned that the network organization, there are two forms. One is the formal one and the other is the informal organization. Can you tell us how Taiwanese skilled labor migrants, they participate in these two different kinds of organization and then what their experiences look like?
0: Yeah, well, there's formal, definitely formal uh, migrant associations. Things like, uh, uh, you know, there was a a, a Chinese migrant uh, um, community network, which um, obviously uh, dealt with the diaspora as well. And uh, you know, so uh, um, you know, to formally help people with uh, kind of basic issues like uh, visas, finding housing, uh, help things like that. There were Taiwanese business organizations like Taitra or. Uh, Team at the uh, Toronto uh, Taiwanese Merchants Association, um, but there were also informal ones. You know, uh, networking that went on just through uh, through social connections, through parties, through even things like language clubs or alumni associations. Uh, um, you know, which I wouldn't say were formal uh, migrant associations, but uh, which people definitely uh, used as migrants to uh, build connections and. Uh, you know, uh, get net, uh, develop networks that they could uh, use in uh, more formal contexts. You know, I uh, and and the opposite was true. Uh, you know, I went to a uh, uh, meeting of the uh, European uh, Taiwanese Association, and there was as much socialization going on, uh, you know, as there was business deals being done. But uh, it was obvious that the two were uh, hard to extricate from each other. You know, if uh, somebody is uh, holding a party, then uh, people are going to uh, remember that person, uh, you know, uh, later on and uh, maybe uh, agree to do business with them. You know, there was a a travel agency that um, everybody in the uh, London Taiwanese uh, community used because uh, they all... uh, knew the lady who ran it and knew that she was uh, Taiwanese and knew people in the community and was very helpful. And then sometime later, when I was in uh, Taipei, I found out that uh, that same travel agency was one that uh, people at uh, National Chung Chi University also used to arrange European travel. So uh, good heavens, you know, it is a small community and people build connections in complicated ways.
1: Yeah. And then um, especially you mentioned and discussed as well, this how this connection and also uh, turn into the business interaction as well. They are making decisions, they are uh, buying tickets, travel plans and everything. So this kind of like the communities uh, in terms of the sense of belonging, but also this kind of business uh, contact as well. And uh, earlier, we talked about uh, the uh, globalization, and especially you mentioned in COVID, you see there are different ways and models of globalization. So how the world is deeply globalized, even though facing different challenges such as COVID, it's just how globalization is being carried out differently. And in your book, you also mentioned that globalization and another way to look at it is it is as a differentiated social activity. Can you tell us more about this?
0: Yeah, no, this was kind of the uh, uh, wider theoretical conclusion of my work. You know, uh, above and beyond just looking at a uh, particular diaspora at a moment in time Um as I said uh, earlier in this interview, um, one of the things that uh, I wanted to look at was that uh, globalization, uh, not as a, uh, you know, is it disappearing? But let's look at this uh, as, uh, you know, what's happening to it, you know. Um, and one of the conclusions I uh, came to, as I said, uh, you know, um, one thing that seemed evident to me was that uh, globalizing processes were continuing, you know, even though there were new barriers to globalization happening. And also that uh, looking at the different uh, demographics uh, of the people in my study, that uh, globalization had happened even at times that people don't normally associate with globalization because um, the people uh, in my research who had migrated in the 50s or 60s or uh, the early 1970s, uh, you know, were migrating before we uh, often see uh, um, globalization as starting. And yet um, they clearly had uh, global connections and uh, were engaging in activities that uh, we would consider uh, globalizing. So what I think we need to see is globalization as a... uh, differentiated phenomenon, not uh, a unified whole, because uh, one of the things I also noticed was that, uh, as I said earlier in the interview, that there were uh, different ways of uh, being global in uh, London and Toronto. You know, London very much engaged with global finance and, uh, you know, post-colonial structures where uh, Canada's globalization came mostly from uh, exporting the uh, in the resource uh, Uh, extractive activities and through uh, um, Canada's reputation as uh, a a good place uh, for migrants. So different ways of being uh, global, but also, as I said, different demographics, uh, all of them experiencing globalization, but in different ways and at different times. So my argument, my final conclusions in the book are that uh, it's too simple to really just say uh, globalization. You know, in fact, we need to be looking at globalization, you know, differentiated globalization. Globalization as a uh, phenomenon that's uh, different uh, in different times and different places. And maybe that'll allow us to uh, um, have, um, you know, do uh, research that's uh, able to capture the uh, nuances of uh, um, you know a, a world that's
1: uh, global as much as it is local yeah and then this kind of different nuances and also the uneven um, terrain in this process and also situation of globalization as you mentioned in the local context in the transnational context in the national context as well and um, so uh, now you finish uh, this book and then what's your uh, next project or what are you working on right now? Um, well, I've just launched another book, uh, which is a,
0: a popular, uh, more popular management text called uh, Management Lessons from Game of Thrones. Um, and in that, yes, I know, uh, but uh, I would... Uh, it started really um, as a bit of a joke, as a kind of a teaching tool to uh, teach my students human resource management concepts by using uh, Game of Thrones as an example. But, um, you know, a bit more seriously, it turns out that uh, uh, a fun way uh, for people to learn, you know, people learn best when they're having fun. And a fun way for people to learn is to uh, think about things like how the Night's Watch uh, does do human resource management or how uh, uh, mergers and acquisitions are like medieval weddings and medieval warfare. So uh, that's just out from Edward Elgar Press. Um, The paperback edition is um, only uh, $30 or £20 or local equivalents. You can get it from Edward Elgar's website or from Amazon or wherever you get your books. Um, But that's also led on to some other uh, research activities because I'm uh, currently writing some academic papers based on the research I did to do the book, you know, because uh, on a more serious side, for instance, uh, there's a lot of literature about using uh, fiction to uh, teach uh, uh, people learning to be leaders how to be leaders. And the interesting thing about Game of Thrones that way is that uh, it's um, got many uh, uh, good examples of uh, female leadership, and uh, uh, women uh, really need uh, fictional uh, Uh, and historical uh, role models in leadership. So uh, looking at uh, Game of Thrones and looking at uh, the trouble that the female uh, characters face as metaphors for the problems that female leaders face in organizations, you know, useful teaching tool. And then it just kind of expands from there because I'm talking with colleagues in the United States about uh, doing studies of uh, fantasy fans and uh, how they uh, interact with their, uh, you know, the the product, as it were, how they uh, the TV series they or book series that they love and, uh, you know, how they uh, consume it or how they uh, resist consuming it. So, uh, you know, th- this is uh, kind of a new direction for me, but one that I'm really uh, enjoying, uh, you know, as a journey.
1: Yeah, I mean, they all sound great and especially how exciting, like you can turn uh, Gimbal Throne uh, to uh, research material, but also for teaching as well. Definitely, I think this is a very engaging and also exciting material uh, for students um, and also, I mean, for us, for the readers and also our audience as well. So we look forward to reading about your book and also more of your works in the future. Um so uh, Fiona, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoy our conversation. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's been a fun it's been really fun. Um and also thank you, our audience, for staying with us till the end. Take good care. We will see you next time. See you Goodbye. soon.
0: Bye bye.